Okay, we're going to do St. Thomas Aquinas, part two. <clears throat> I'm excited about this. I love St. Thomas Aquinas. The hardest part for me, if teach, somebody asks me, what's the hardest part about teaching your class? Is it the fact you don't have a curriculum and you have to write your own? Well, that's hard. Is it that you don't really have a clue where you're going next because you're just kind of putting it together as you go along? And I mean, I say we don't have a clue. I've got the next eight weeks kind of planned out or I wouldn't make it through trial, but, but that's definitely hard. Is it that uh, uh, you just have the, 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 the hard work of getting ready each week? And that's definitely hard. But I think the hardest part of this class for me is I get to, to, to wade in the shallow end of some incredible history and some incredible people when I'd love to, to bathe in them or just, just jump into the deep end and swim around and frolic for a few hours. And I don't have the chance to do that. I mean, St. Thomas Aquinas, I have had an absolute ball growing in what I know of him in order to, to be able to teach you uh, 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 what we, we learn in these classes. I just wish, I, it's, it's like Augustine, I wish I had time to read everything he wrote. Um, but I don't. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> Maybe one day. You see, St. Thomas it, it wrote over 60 books in less than a 50-year lifespan. And one of the books, for example, is his Summa Theologica. Uh, I've got it in five volumes. It's about that long. Okay, and he, and the, he hand-wrote these, remember, um, or, or dictated them and had someone else write them. And it's an absolutely... What? Yeah, it is big print. Bob's pointing that out. So maybe the fact he's clearly in trial mode, thinking critically. So thank you, Dr. Bob. So it's not that big of a deal that it's that big. It's, it's uh, on a typewriter. It's three pages. But it actually, the version that's that big is typed and uh, very small type. Um, as a boy, he was born into a noble family. His dad was uh, 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 Count Lundolf, the Count or mini-king, if you will, of, of Aquino. And um, as a five-year-old, he was sent to a monastery uh, to study, the monastery at Monte Cassino, the, the most famous monastery at the time. He stayed there for five years and from there went to the University of Naples. At the University of Naples which was a, a, a new university. The university systems had just started in the 1200s. Naples, I think, in 1224. T Thomas is born in 1225. So this is around 1235 that he goes, A.D. He goes to the University of Naples, and he not only uh, gets an opportunity to learn Aristotle, but he gets to meet all sorts of new people as he grows into an independent little college kid of 12. Um, he meets the Dominicans, the city preachers. The Dominican movement had finally gotten authorization from the Pope in 1216, so it's still a baby movement, even though St. Dominic has died at this point in time. The Dominican movement, though, is kind of the countercultural movement, if you will. They were the folks that were against the economy, against much of the church, against much of the, the, the way the, the local political landscape was set up. What they would do is while they mainly lived in the cities, they would go out in the rural areas and they would preach. The Dominicans had taken an oath of celibacy, of poverty, but mainly of, of silence unless they're teaching and preaching. They spend their time in study, in teaching and preaching, for their duration of their lives. And that's how they've dedicated themselves. They are against material possessions. They won't even ride a horse. They'll walk everywhere they go because they don't want money spent on a horse when that money could be spent uh, uh, on the poor or preaching the gospel. <clears throat> These people, because they studied all the time, were very strong academically. It was very important to them to learn and to study and to use their minds and, and, and to be thinking people as they proclaimed uh, uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ to the folks that they preached to. Uh, and St. Thomas then is, is in touch not only with the academics of the university life, but he's also in touch with the Dominicans as well. And as uh, uh, history has recorded, uh, it was uh, uh, St. Thomas's calling, he felt, to become a Dominican. 
And so much to his family's dismay, he said no to the family wealth. He said no to the family political power. He said no to the family's goals for him in life and instead embraced poverty, preaching the gospel for the rest of his life. Uh, his family was not fond of that. We talked last week about the story when uh, Thomas is here studying in Naples. The Dominicans said, we need to send you from here. You need to head on up and do your studies in Paris. It was while en route walking from Naples to Paris. <clears throat> I just can't get over that. I was jogging this morning and I was thinking, I don't even want to jog for 15 minutes. How on earth would you walk from Naples to Paris? Um, but anyway, while walking from Naples to Paris, that his family, in love, I'm sure, had him kidnapped and locked up for a year. Uh, the first night, getting to spend uh, with the prostitute that had been planted in the room to try and rob him of his celibacy so that he couldn't be a Dominican. And uh, while Thomas was able to hold her off through the night, uh, fending her away with the, the, the hot... Uh, poker from the fireplace. Uh, uh, she didn't want to have anything to do with him by the next morning, and she left. Um, he spent a year or so locked up in seclusion from his family as they tried to deprogram him by giving him reading material, which, as we mentioned last week, is exactly what a Dominican prays for in life, is solitude to read. And so, uh, uh, unknown to his family, as they tried to wean him and deprogram him from what they considered a cult, uh, it actually entrenched him further. He had a photographic memory. He came close to memorizing the Bible during that year. He uh, 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 came very conversant with, with uh, Aristotle and some others. He got to Paris, and when he got to Paris originally, he was a student. Now, as St. Thomas comes to Paris, uh, uh, the cathedral Notre Dame is, is almost finished being built. And uh, he goes there to study at the University of Paris, what is now called the Sorbonne or whatever. Um, uh, my French is very Lubbock. <clears throat> <laughs> I've always thought French was a neat language because it seems to me if I was going to be a poet, I'd want to be a poet in French because I think all their words rhyme. I mean, everything is <laughs> to my ears. Um, Anyway, uh, that's a side point. Um, he goes to Paris, and uh, as he's walking into Paris at one point, and it wasn't his first visit there, but at one point as St. Thomas becomes a teacher at the University of Paris, he's walking back into Paris with some of his students, and his students said, Oh, the beauty of Paris. I don't know how many of you have been to Paris, but it truly is a beautiful city. And this is even pre-Eiffel Tower, but it's still a pretty city, okay? And one of the students says, Oh, Paris is such a beautiful city. And uh, everybody else, yes, yes, yes. And one of the students said, Ooh, wouldn't it be so great if you, St. Thomas, they didn't call him Saint, if you, Thomas, owned the city of Paris? He said, Well, what would I do with it? And they said, You could sell it to the king, and you could take all of that money, and you could build monasteries for all of the Dominican brothers. And um, bless his heart, he said, well, actually, if I really had something right now, I'd much rather have all of John Chrysostom's sermons on Matthew. That's this guy's mentality. He's thinking, man, if I could have anything in the world, I'd love that guy's sermon series on Matthew. Now, John Chrysostom, if you go back in our earlier lessons, was the honeymouthed preacher from the 300s. So he's saying, at 900 years ago, man, that guy could preach. How many of you, if you could have anything in the world right now, would choose a sermon series by someone who preached 900 years ago? I've got to be honest with you, I'm just not there. This guy was, <laughs> this guy was a little different than most people. And uh, uh, he was very engaged in trying to understand how the brain worked and how reason worked and how our minds worked with our faith. It's not, you, you've heard the idea of a leap of faith. That doesn't come in philosophy for several hundred years, the philosopher who coined that term. But at the time of Thomas, there were still a lot of people who thought, I believe I don't need to know anything. 
And Thomas was very much against that. And some of the reason he was against that, we talked last week, and we're still reviewing a bit of last week before we move into this week, but, but we need to be up on all cylinders as we go into this week. It's fairly, um, uh, it's built off of what we discussed. Um, one of the things that really influenced Thomas was the, the unbelievers that were out there, the pagans, not just the pagans, but the Muslims who didn't believe in God as we understand God has revealed himself through Jesus and in Scripture. And so Thomas said, you know, how do you confront those people? How do you confront them both as to what they believe about God and whether or not there is a God? And also, how do you confront those people in morality? How do you argue morality with someone who will not agree that Scripture is the basis for right and wrong? And this was his problem. And so um, he would tell people, you know, hey, we've got a problem. We're going to have to use our brains here. Now, that does not mean that Thomas thought the brain was the only answer. In fact, there are some things that Thomas said reason can't really adequately get us to an answer. But those are few and far between. Thomas saw that God has given us Scripture, and that's divine revelation. And those who are of faith, he says, it's the easiest way to figure out what's right and wrong. If you and I want to figure out what's right and wrong, and St. Thomas were in here to talk to us, he wouldn't say the answer is just go through the process that I'm going to go through with you all in a little bit. He'd say the easiest way is just read your Bible. Or go talk to someone who knows their Bible and they'll send you to the right place to read. Because God's revealed it. But he says in addition to divine revelation, God has given us brains that are able to reason through things. And our belief in the Bible and our belief in what the Bible teaches is not irrational. It makes sense. It makes good reasoned sense. It makes logical sense. And so that's what he said. So if some fellow comes up to him on the street and says, how can you believe in God? St. Thomas was able to answer, let me give you five different reasons. And we talked last week about his five proofs for the existence of God. After we talked about those, we talked a little bit last week about the term metaphysics. If you don't have last week's lesson, thanks to the wonder work of Steve Taylor and some others, you can get the lesson, either audio or uh, PowerPoint or the actual physical lesson itself, on the website www.biblical-literacy.com And so I, I, I urge you to go there if it's of use to you. If not, then uh, don't worry about it. Um, if metaphysics itself as a term is something we're not all totally familiar with, it's not in our everyday vocabulary at least, though I will admit I got an email this morning about metaphysics, but that's rare. And uh, uh, anyway, physics itself is the science of the physical world, the world we see. Physics is uh, uh, how do we determine how an airplane goes up in the sky and, and comes back down. I met an air traffic controller this morning who's in our class. Uh, uh, and, and, and physics is involved in how an airplane goes up and down. Physics is involved in, in, in deciding how things build or how things degrade. Physics is the science of the physical world. And physicists, or people who study it, are people who use science and experiments to make determinations about that. Meta is the Greek word that means beyond or after. So metaphysics are the physics of things beyond what we see physically. It is the study of the non-physical world. It's the study of ideas, the spiritual world, the, the unseen uh, uh, aspects. In physics will show us what things are that we see and how we see them. Metaphysics will show us what their essence is, what's, really, what's the meaning, what's the, 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 the unseen aspects of it. And, and, and that's the study beyond the physical world. And what uh, Thomas said is, the key to understanding metaphysics, so this key to understanding the real essence of what something is, is asking what is the purpose of the object. And so, for example, um, if we have a pilot, we'll stick with the airplane for a minute. What is the, the truth behind a pilot? 
What makes a pilot a pilot? Well, it might be that it's a human being, but not really. You can find lots of humans that aren't pilots. It's not the human being that makes it a pilot. What is it that makes a pilot a pilot? Thomas says, ask what the purpose is. What's the purpose of a pilot? To fly an airplane. So the essence or, or the essential quality, the essence of what makes a pilot a pilot is someone who's flying an airplane or able to fly an airplane or working to fly an airplane or used to fly an airplane, but it's something to do with flying an airplane. It, uh, what what makes uh, uh, mom's got Benjamin here? Benjamin's an opera singer who comes down here from I think you live in Ohio generally, and uh, he's down here singing in the Heights an opera, and uh, stays with mom and grandmother when he's down here. And what makes an opera singer an opera singer? Well, it's not that they're from Ohio. I've met opera singers that are not from Ohio. It's not that they're. Uh, name's Benjamin. I've met opera singers whose name's not Benjamin. It's that they, the, the purpose of an opera singer is to sing in the opera. So what makes an opera singer an opera singer? Someone singing in the opera. It's, it's, you look at the purpose of, a, of, of an object. Okay, you with me? Okay. Now, that's one complete thought you've got to keep in your brain for this lesson. There's a second complete thought you've got to keep in your brain, and now we're on new material. So just... Forget everything we've said for a minute and just focus in on this brand new thought, okay? This brand new thought we're calling natural law. What's the root of the word natural? Nature, okay? Natural law. Divine revelation, that is divine law. That's the law that God gives us and we can read it and it's holy and it's pure and it's right and it comes from God and it's divine. Natural law is more on the brain end of things. This is just that nature's law, nature's instincts if it's in an animal. Here's the way Thomas says it. Man is born with a drive to act in a good and proper manner. There's something within each one of us that drives us to do things in a good, right way. For an animal, it's called instinct. For a human, Thomas calls it natural law. This becomes huge. This is what John Locke grabs a hold of in a couple hundred years and, and works out a little bit more. And then a couple hundred years later, Thomas Jefferson grabs a hold of it and writes our Declaration of Independence where he says that men have certain inalienable rights that we're born with. We have these. This is natural law. We have life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness as things that are ours, that are, we are inherently have. And that's the premise of the Declaration of Independence. I mean, Jefferson is... It, well, I don't have time to get into that. It's in your handout materials, though. From a Christian perspective, what went on when America seceded from England was a very difficult issue because the Bible tells us that authority, government authority, is put there by God and we're to honor it. And yet we're sitting here as a country saying, oh, forget you, King of England and Parliament. We're going out on our own. And, and the Christians of the, the Revolution age had a very difficult time, some of them, with that concept. But it was Thomas Aquinas' thought process that allowed them to say, okay, this is the right thing to do right now. And uh, there's lots to be said about that. I'm not going to emphasize it. But I want us to understand natural law is the idea that man is born with a drive to act in a good and proper manner. Now, Thomas said that there are actually five primary parts of natural law, five primary driving forces that are inherent or imbued within each human being. He says there are a lot of secondary ones. But five primary motivators or, 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 or uh, 
uh, not habits, five primary uh, uh, aspects of life that are, are within each human being. Doesn't matter if you're a Christian, if you're a Muslim, if you're a Jew, if you're a pagan, if you're a Hindu, doesn't matter. These five are universal. God has put them into all people. And all people, whether they acknowledge God or not, have these five drives. The first one is self-preservation. We all inherently, naturally, because God gave it to us, but, but just as part of our nature, we have self-preservation, uh, a, a drive to take care of ourselves. That's why we eat. We eat because we need to. Now, on all of these, Thomas is quick to say that sin, and you see, here's where he gets to morality. Sin and morality is where we live contrary to our nature. Which is biblical. Biblically, the biblical perspective is sin is a list of things God wants us to do or not do because it's what's best for us. Not just because it's arbitrary and God's some old man in a rocking chair who said, I ain't going to let him do that. That's too much fun. I mean, God puts it, uh, gives us this as understanding of how we need to live our life for what's best for us. And his purposes. Well, in the same way, what Thomas says is, is people who don't live consistent with their nature are sinning. We teach morality to people who won't agree with the Bible and won't agree with the Christian faith. We can teach them morality by looking at whether their lives are consistent with what's best for them. Does that make sense? So people who eat too much, gluttony is what the Bible calls it as sin aren't really nurturing themselves in self-preservation. They're eating themselves into an early grave or into a, a difficult life of health. People who eat too little aren't really taking care of themselves. That, see what I mean? So self-preservation is one area. Uh, procreation, um, uh, uh, the drive to have offspring. And people who do it in a godly manner, you know, we can talk about procreation as Christians by reading what God has us do and it's within the confines of marriage and, and etc. You compare that to the natural law and what Thomas says is, is you can reason through and come to the same biblical conclusions. The best way to procreate and take care of children and to have a relationship with each other and to rear those children in a peaceful home and da-da-da-da-da. You know, this is what he says. Close to, to procreation is number three, which is educating children. And Thomas says there is a drive, a natural law desire to educate our children and our offspring. Once our children are born, we do not abandon them inherently. The, the, the natural law that God has put within us says we're going to take those children and we're going to see that they grow up right. And so now in the Bible it says, you know, we have all of this information about how to parent our children and how important it is that we teach them and, 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 and that the words of God are, are, are things that they hear as we go out and as we come back. And we read that Jesus was brought up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And, 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 and Paul says, you know, parents don't provoke your children to wrath. And there's all sorts, you know, the Proverbs spare the rod and spoil the child. There's all sorts of things in the Bible that, that were given to help us parent. But Thomas says that drive to parenting is natural within us. And if people won't accept the Bible, we can still reason with them on how important it is and the best ways to educate children. And we can teach that same morality that the Bible has if we are smart enough and well-reasoned enough to communicate it. A fourth area is living in society. Now, the Bible talks about how we live in community and, and how we, we live in not only a larger community but smaller community of believers. Thomas says, though, you go outside and you see the cities that are there, whether people are Christians or not. Humans rely upon interaction with each other. They live in society. They live in community. And so we can take morality that the Bible teaches us about how we love our neighbor, how we treat our neighbor as ourselves, 
But how we, justice is something God wants, how we take care of the widows and orphans, how, you know, all of those things. He says you can derive that through reasoning by tapping in to this inherent drive in all humans to live in society. And then what you've got to do is figure out the best ways to live within society to further those, are, uh, those ends. Uh, the fifth and final area is worshiping God. Now you might be saying, hey, wait a minute. I thought this was stuff he was doing apart from the Bible. Yes, in a sense. But what Thomas says is in the Bible, we have revealed to us how to worship God and who God is. But you can take away the Bible and it doesn't have to be in a church atmosphere. It can be at a Hindu temple or it can be almost anywhere. But people find divinity to worship. People find something outside of themselves. Now, some may be atheists. I had someone, uh, my little sister was telling me yesterday about someone she was reading who says that uh, the ecology today is their religion. And she said, isn't that twisted that they've used the word religion there? And I said, yeah, in a way it is. Because, I mean, I, I am... I care about ecology and I care about the world we live in because of my religion. Because God's told me one of my jobs is to take care of the planet Earth. Okay? That's the first commandment given to man. But people who say that is my faith, that's my religion, that's what I believe in, I don't, you know, I'd, I'd like them to meet God who made what they believe in. But don't get me wrong. What Thomas says is they believe in something. They're ascribing worth to something. There are very, 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 very few people in this world who truly believe there's nothing beyond themselves of any value. And those who do, Thomas would say, are living contrary to their nature. Because the nature is to worship God. Thomas would go further and say, if you don't worship God as we understand Him and as He's revealed Himself in the Bible, then however you are worshiping God, is contrary to your nature. But that's a point where you can talk to people and you can reason with them. So, that's what he said. He said, natural law can teach scriptural morality to those who don't believe in scripture. Alright, so with our remaining 20 minutes, let's do some of that. Let's look at some of the areas where Thomas taught uh, 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 morality apart from Scripture. Um, uh, first one, uh, we'll throw out sexuality because this is an area where he has truly had a profound influence on Western civilization. Here's what Thomas said. First, what's our question? Our question is, when we're dealing with this, what is the end or what is the purpose of sexuality? Why does it exist? Because he says you've got to first get to the essence of what it is. And then we understand it from natural law. He says the essence of sexuality, why it exists, he says there are three purposes that he could find. He says purpose number one is procreation. Men and women have a, a, a sexual relationship for procreation, to produce offspring. A second reason, he says, sexuality exists is it's a way of uniting a husband and wife. It is a bond that a husband and wife share, that, that draws them closer together as a family unit. Okay? And then the third reason is pleasure. Now here's what Thomas comes from with this. And, and I want to talk to you about it both from the morality end of looking at morality apart from Scripture, but I also want to show you how he uses this with Christians to talk about morality from a Christian perspective, because it's both. He says we can reason through this in both. Thomas says, sexuality is holy, right, good, and pure when it's there to meet those three purposes. What is the major religion in the Western civilization that as a faith doesn't believe in birth control? Catholic Church. And the reason they don't is because of St. Thomas Aquinas. Because to use birth control is to have a sexual relationship that denies purpose one of sexuality. And so it's sinful. Now, 
that's not the only sin. You can also have sinful sexuality by having a sexual relationship outside of marriage. Whether that's in a, a fornication way or in an adultery way. Why? Because it violates the second. And if you do it with birth control, you've violated two of them. Don't laugh. He, I mean, this, he's got a Catholic mentality of the afterlife. Okay, remember when we looked at Dante? You got heaven, you got hell, and you got purgatory in the middle. And he's got this concept that you rank sins. Because the punishment's more severe, the worse the sin. So, I mean, it's, it's horrible sin to do any one of those violations. But if you start violating two or more, you've really gone beyond the realm. Now, he says, you can reason this way with a non-believer in Scripture, but you can reason this way with people who believe in Scripture because it's the way people who believe in Scripture will understand the birth control issue. It's the way people who believe in Scripture will understand the issue of... Uh, of uh, um, uh, uh, why it's wrong to go out and fornicate, why it's wrong to, to, to do any number of things. He would write not only within the framework of this. This guy wrote on everything. He writes on uh, uh, um, multiple spouses. You know, is it okay for a husband to have more than one wife? My friend Kevin Parker said to me when we were discussing this one time, he said, can you imagine having more than one person telling you all the time to take out the trash. You know, it just, he couldn't fathom that anybody would even remotely want that. But Thomas writes on it, and he writes on it from the perspective recognizing David had more than one wife. The patriarchs in the Old Testament did. But he says, what's the purpose of marriage? And he lists, what's the end? What's the essence? What's the essence? And then after listing that, he says, now... Does polygamy, having more than one spouse, meet or not? And he notes where it does meet some, but where it does not meet others. And uh, uh, it's very interesting. So he says polygamy is wrong. Um, he, he forms the basis, you know, uh, homosexuality as a, as a lifestyle, practicing homosexuality. He says it's, it, it's invalid because it, too, of those purposes are not met. Um, uh, and so he goes through, and this is the way he looks at things. And it's just fascinating to read his stuff. Um, he writes on abortion. He writes on all sorts of things. And you can see how his sexual morality writing, which had not been done before like this, has influenced our civilization. Um, Self-pleasuring, which is the polite way of talking about it in our mixed audience. He, was, he writes a big section on it. It's wrong because it violates number one and number two. It's worse than a husband and wife just using birth control in his mentality. And so we have a Western civilization that's grown up with that as the inherent background, the underlying morality that's been taught. Let's talk about Thomas on war, what he had to say about war. Thomas is the principal person who has written on what a just war is. He wrote not only on whether or not it's just to go to war, he also wrote extensively on how you uh, uh, behave in war, what you can and cannot do as a warrior. One of the people I send my lessons out to, to, to review as a Christian who is a major in the uh, uh, Army. Um, I think it was the Army. could have been the Marines. No, it was the Army. And uh, uh, he, he was in the Army for 13, 14 years. And he's also a lawyer, which is, is wonderful. Um, he was the principal prosecutor for the military in the Abu Ghraib um, prison scandal. Okay? When, when uh, the, the, uh, some of the American soldiers... Uh, abused uh, sexually and otherwise some of the Iranian um, um, prisoners and and uh, Iraqi thank you and um, he was the primary prosecutor and I wrote to him or I sent him the lesson and he wrote me back and he said uh, you know what's interesting he says if you go to military school 
you study St. Thomas Aquinas because he's the man behind this stuff. He's the one that really first set out. When is it just to go to war? And when you go to war, how must you conduct yourself in that war? It's what's been put into uh, uh, the international treaties now that most nations sign and adhere by. Here are the three items to make a war just. He says, if you want to go to war, you have to have a just cause. There has to be a legitimate reason that is just. Now, we can debate what is just and is not just, and we do that. I chose a picture of Adolf Hitler because I think most everyone I've ever met agrees that going to war to stop the atrocities that were happening under Adolf Hitler was a just cause. It is something appropriate that God himself would do. And so, but, but that's the debate then, and there is room for a debate, and there's room for reasoned argument, and different people may take different sides. But Thomas says, before a Christian should go to war, a Christian must be personally satisfied that this is a just war. The second thing is that the war has been declared by a just authority. And that means two things. It means an actual authority that has the authority to declare, let's go to war. But it also means that that authority needs to be just in the declaration. The authority uh, 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 has to be just in the declaration. For um, St. Thomas in his day and age, that could be at least two different sources. For example, the king. The king certainly was, was an authority and, and hopefully a just king a godly king who would declare this on, for just reasons. But there was a second person that always had the authority to declare a war in Thomas's day. Who was it? The Pope. And uh, those were the Crusades where Thomas had at least two brothers fighting in uh, uh, armies for the Crusades. So to be a just war had to be a, 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 a just cause declared by a just authority and then his third requirement was just intent. Now my picture here is grab.com. It was never considered just to go to war just to grab something. Ooh, I want that land. Ooh, I want their crops. Ooh, I want their people. Ooh, I want their resources. That's not a just cause. That's not a just intent. You've got to be going to war for a just reason, he says. And your intent, don't... He, and here's where he talks about it. He says, you know, there's sometimes there are people who say that they've got a just cause and a just intent, but that's not the real reason they're going. You can have the most just cause in the world, but if the real reason you're going is over here, just because the cause is just, you're not going for the right reasons, and it's not right. So those were his three. Now, the problem that a lot of people have had with war from a Christian perspective, not only today, but in the past, is a, something um, where, uh, uh, you know, right now in Iraq, let, let me put it uh, in real terms for us. I got on the Internet, and I did a search. How many non-combatants have been killed in Iraq during this war. By non-combatants, I mean non-military people. And the estimates that I saw on the Internet range from 75,000 to over 600,000. These, by and large, are women and children and elderly. Are they all non-combatants? I don't know. I'm not over there. Are the numbers right? I don't know. I'm not over there. And nobody I know of has a clicker. Okay? But clearly some are. Clearly some of these are just innocent people. And that doesn't mean that the Americans and the British and the, the coalition forces are the ones who've done the damage, though certainly there has been collateral damage because of us. But it also means that some of these are the ones who are the victims of the suicide bombs and, and the acts that, that, are, 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 that we're trying to control. 
and bring under control because of the threat they are to society over there. Um, and, 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 and this is not a new problem. This has been a problem for a long time. You know, this is the problem in the military. What do you do if your warrior opponent chooses an elementary school to hide their ammunitions? What is the Christian response? What if Saddam Hussein holds himself up with his elite troops in a hospital with a lot of sick, innocent people? What do we do? And so these are very strong ethical issues. And, and you know, as a Christian, we say, yes, well, we'll just read the Bible. But you can read the Bible and, and, and come to different answers depending on where you started. And so Thomas wrote on this and he said this dilemma is a dilemma that he called the dilemma of dual consequences. He says this is where one act, going to war, can actually have two different results. Sometimes we do something that has two results. Now, if both results are good, then it's an okay thing to do, right? But if you've got two results that are bad, then what you're doing is bad and you just don't do it. But what if you've got a good result and a bad result from your actions? Then you've got a dilemma. Now, I see Constable Ron Hickman out there. He and the gentlemen and ladies that work for him are in law enforcement. These are real issues to anybody who ever thinks I might have to draw a gun as part of my job. It doesn't have to be in the military. What if your actions may have a good result and a bad result? Now, some Christians in Thomas's day and some today would say if there is going to be an evil or bad or sinful result, for example, Sixth Commandment, thou shalt not kill. Well, if sending a missile in to get the warriors is going to kill innocent people in a hospital, there are those who say it should never be done. Thomas was not of that mindset. Thomas says that you can do an action that has a good result and a bad result if, if your intent is right. If you in, you're doing it and the real reason you're doing it is for the good result then that there is a bad result is okay. But, 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 don't end it there. There's more. It can't just be a good intent. He says the good that you're going to achieve also has to outweigh the bad. In modern military terms, they now call this discrimination. You use discrimination about when you're going to use force and how much force you're going to use. That's proportionality. He said the same thing. The good to be achieved has to outweigh the bad. You don't kill 150 people to get back something that was stolen from you. Okay. The, the, the bad outweighs the good there. You don't kill 10 innocent people. I'd say you don't kill one innocent person just to get back something someone stole from you. The good has to outweigh the bad. And you're, what you're doing has to be in, in, in proper proportion to what you're trying to get. The intent being good. Now, um, okay, we don't have time for everything, but i got to tell you a few more things this guy did. It's really good. Political structures. He wrote about political structures and what's the best form of government to have. And he did the same thing. He said, let's just do this based on, on reasoning. He says, for example, you can have a government where... Uh, uh, one person, a king, a monarchy rules, or you can have it where it's every man for himself and every, there's no real ruler and everybody themselves rules. He says, if you have a king, in some ways that's the best form of government in the sense that it's the most efficient. There's very little red tape when one guy makes all the decisions. You want a new law? You know, if President Bush were king instead of president, he wouldn't give a rip about who won the last election because there's nobody but him that makes the decisions. You don't need Congress. You don't need anything else. You just need enforcement. But we don't have that system in America. 
Neither he nor anybody in America, though it must be frustrating to be a politician in our country. It's got to be frustrating. It's still the best, what did Churchill say? The, the best of, of the worst systems of government or something like that. I mean, it, it, and this is what Thomas said. He said, a king is in some ways the most efficient and best form of government. He said, but the problem is there's no check on a king's power. And when you get that much power, you have a tendency to start doing things for selfish reasons. And a king who acts for himself instead of the good of the people, that's tyranny. That's bad. That's at the bad end. So he says, while a king is the most efficient, it's the most efficient at doing good, it's also the most efficient at doing evil and in some ways is extremely dangerous. So he says, so you can go from there. Next, um, uh, an aristocracy, the ruling elite, where those who seem to have it all together and are the most powerful rule the country or rule the city or rule the area. He says, now, it's not as efficient as a king because whether you've got two, three, four, five, six, seven, ten, fifteen people, they've got to figure out how to all get along. So they lose some efficiency there. But you've got a little bit of a check and balance because they're not going to be as efficient at doing good, but they're not going to be as efficient at doing evil. He says it's, 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 it's not as efficient as a king, but it might even be a little bit better in terms of the net effect. And then he finally gets to the, the, the oh, and those people who, who do that but turn it on its head and do it for evil purposes, an oligarchy is the opposite end of that coin. And, and he says, you know, that's not good. That's where the, the, the rich rule for the rich and, and let everybody else be dirt in their feet or something. And then he says, then there's this third and fourth kind of stuff, which is kind of a, where the, the, the people, a democracy, where we all have input in the people that will put in place to govern us. And he says that's probably the least efficient, but the safest and best. Because he says ultimately, everybody should take some share in the government. This form of government where everybody takes some share ensures peace among the people. And this is why our forefathers studied not only Aquinas, but John Locke and Thomas Hobbes and others who wrote on these issues and determined a system of government in our country where we elect people and where even within that process there are checks and balances so that no one group ever has too much power. And it's some of the genius of our country. He wrote on much, much more, but I've got to tell you this. Oh, I didn't get to tell you the story. He was a bit of a gullible fella. One time he's in, uh, uh, he's in uh, uh, the city and someone who knows he's gullible makes a fool of him. says, hey, quick, come look. There's a flying ox. And he walks over to look. And they, ah, <laughs> you are so gullible. And his response, bless his heart, was, well, I, and this was another monk who did it, right? He said, well, I'd rather believe that there's a flying ox than a monk who would lie. <laughs> he was soft-spoken. He was always considered cheerful. These are words that people use to describe him. He was always in a good mood, consistently in a good mood. They said he was very patient, he was very careful, and he always, always, always was compassionate to poor people. Um, one year before he died, he was in worship service, and he was worshiping, and he had an encounter with God that changed his life. And he put down his pen and he said, I'm not going to write anymore. He said, everything that I've written is just garbage compared to the experience I've just had with God. And in fact, he said, when I'm dead, would you all please tear up my books? Because everything I've written, I'd like it to be destroyed. Because compared to what I've experienced with God, my writings are rubbish. Now, the books were not destroyed because one of the, the, the priests after him said, while Thomas, after his experience, may not have needed any of these writings, the church still needs them all. So they didn't destroy them. Um, right before he died, he made his peace, and he said uh, prayerfully, God, uh, if there... And he, by the way, he died while heading to a conference in Lyon, France, and he just couldn't make it walking. 
Um, uh, uh, he said, God, if there's stuff that I've written that's wrong, would you please get it fixed and not hold it against me? I've just tried to bring you glory. And he died. 49. Points for home. Um, we have the word of God to guide us in life. We're Christians. If God's word says it, then we can believe it and that can settle it. I really do believe that. All scripture is God-breathed. All scripture is profitable for us to teach each other and to rebuke and, and to correct and to train us in righteousness. They equip us to be thoroughly ready for every good work. But let's not forget God made our minds and our minds matter. Dale wrote me and said, what about Job? Job argues with God. David in the Psalms argues with God. Um, God knows that we've got brains and He expects them to use us. The Proverbs, actually that's Psalm 119. Sorry for that typo. If you're looking for Proverbs 119, you're going to run out after Proverbs 31. Um, teach me good discernment and knowledge. Teach me. I want to discern. God, teach my mind. Make it work. Incline my heart to understanding. I cry out for discernment. I want to understand more. I want my brain to work. I want it to work right and holy. God calls us to reason. And Isaiah, another passage Dale sent me, come now, let us reason together. God says, you use your brain with me. Let's make this a team effort. Think about this, God says. Think about this, that though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be white as snow. That though they're red as crimson, they'll be like wool. Kipi Adonai Diber in Hebrew, because the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. And that's enough reason to believe it. But God doesn't just say it. He says, think about it with me. Reason on it. Let's reason together. And finally, i got to tell you, the greatest truth you'll ever know is Jesus Christ. He is eternal life. And Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus whom you've sent. And that's something I'll always stay here all day long, so will Lewis, so will others, to talk to you about if you ever want to. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for who you are, and we thank you for the magnificent foundations that you have laid in the church for us to live in. Lord, we look back at all of these people, and none of them were perfect save your Son. Your son, Lord, as perfect is the foundation of the church. There's no question. But yet I see the stones that have been built that have come before us. And, and I'm amazed at how you've used them to, to mold us as a family here today. Please continue to teach us how you unfolded our lives in history. And touch our hearts to serve you better so that tomorrow our children and our future will be able to build positively on what you do in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.